Well, now, uh, turning to the Old Testament for our sermon, uh, if you'd turn to 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, if you are using a pew Bible and you'd like to follow along in the Bible, um, our scripture for this morning will begin on page 392, uh, 392, 2 Kings chapter 4. Again, as we've had uh, missions weeks, mission season now, as Pastor Matt talked about. It's not one week long, but about two and a half. Uh, We've been out of of Kings, out of the life of uh, Elijah and Elisha, the series that we began uh, a while ago, and uh, but we're going to jump right back in uh, and try to finish up before the the summer comes, where I believe we're going to be going into Psalm 119 uh, during that time. But uh, again, just to give a little context of where we are before we even read this passage. Um, We've gone through the life of Elijah, uh, the prophet Elijah. And of course, the prophet Elijah was raised up by God uh, to do really what his name uh, says, what his name translates as Jah or Yah. uh, Jah or Yahweh is God. Uh, And that is the point of Elijah's life. It's really to confront these People, the Israelites and their apostasy, as they've turned away uh, from the God who rescued them, the God who came to Abraham and made a covenant with him, and then with Isaac and Jacob and all of his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, the God who raised up Moses in Egypt and then rescued them out of the land of Egypt and brought them to himself and made a covenant with them and brought them into the land that he promised to Abraham. And he gave him his commandments, and he made them swear, and he swore himself to them to be faithful and to bless them when they were obedient. And now they're in the land, hundreds and hundreds of years have passed by, and the people have not been obedient. Uh, There's rampant apostasy, and especially with Elijah, if you remember with the king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, uh, the worship of the, the Canaanite or the Phoenician God, just north of there, Baal, uh, has, has risen to uh, horrendous proportions, where the people are no longer worshiping Yahweh, that is the, the God of the Bible, the true God, uh, but rather they're worshiping Baal. And again, Elijah uh, confronts them. He has that showdown on Mount Carmel where they kill all the prophets of Baal after uh, God shows that he alone is God. Um, I'll be using uh, Yahweh quite a bit during this sermon, and again, this is just to differentiate uh, the Lord. And when I say that, don't I hope if we're thinking, who in the world is this Yahweh? Uh, that is God. When 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 our God revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush and in Exodus, and Moses asked who He was, uh, what His name was, He said, "I am who I am," or "I am that I am." And uh, that name roughly translates to something around the way of, of Yahweh. It comes from the Hebrew verb for to be, Hayah. And uh, we'll see in capital letters in your Bible, where you see all capital L-O-R-D, all capital. The Jews were, were very careful about saying that name because they were afraid of using it in vain. So they'd often just say the Lord or the name or something like that. And uh, so when we see in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, uh, there's an emphasis here that this is Yahweh, the, the true one God who we still worship, uh, and uh, Baal, the false god of the Canaanites, who's supposed to be a fertility god who can 
give you plenty of crops and children and everything else. And this is really the war that was going on between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And we'll see, continues uh, to go on between Elisha, his successor, and uh, the people as well. So again, um, we'll be looking at chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to skip a big portion of chapter 4. We will be coming back to this. I believe Pastor Matt is going to be preaching on this next week, on the raising of a, a Shunammite, this is a Gentile a woman's son. But So we're going to read verses 1 through 7, then jump all the way ahead to verses 38 through 44. And what we're going to see here uh, in this section of Kings is a lot of miracles uh, that are done. And I guess more uh, accurately to say a lot of miracles done by God, by Yahweh, the true God, through his, pri- not prophet, but prophet Elisha. I was getting ahead of myself there with Elisha. But through his prophet Elisha, uh, God is doing these miracles and uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. So uh, before we get into uh, the text itself and, and explaining it, let's, uh, uh, let's read it. So Second um, Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 1, reads, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Now jumping ahead to verse 38. It says, And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men and they, that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal, Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. This is God's holy word. Would he write its truths upon our hearts? Let's go to him in prayer and ask him to bless this time in his word. 
Lord, your word remains forever. Lord, we need your word. It is sustenance to your people. Would you feed us from your word? Would it be sweet as the honeycomb? Lord, would it be, uh, would your word find hearts that are tilled, that are uh, ready to have your word implanted? Father, would you work in us? We need you desperately, and you are our Lord, our gracious Lord. Would you help us? Uh, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as many of you uh, know, uh, I teach Bible at the Christian school. Probably all of you know. I teach Bible at the Christian school, and finishing up our our third year uh, here, uh, I'm finishing up my third year at the Christian school. I think as perhaps all, or at least most of you probably know, this isn't my first foray into teaching. I was a teacher uh, before moving to Dillon. Uh, In fact, I was a teacher before we ever moved to Charlotte back in, was that 2014, 17, 15? One of those. 15? 2015, uh, I taught uh, in public school. I I was a history teacher and an economics teacher uh, back in Arizona before we ever moved here. And I loved teaching, and I especially loved teaching history. I still love history. I love to read or listen to, quite often now, uh, history. But uh, as I taught history in, for middle school kids sometimes and, and high school kids, um, we'd teach about wars and famines and conquests and uh, revolutions and so forth, and of course more wars, and you get back to that. I remember, it could be exciting, but I remember the inevitable question would come every year, and I'd be waiting for it, and it's the same question that I had when I was a kid as well, when I was being taught history, and and the question, of course, when you're learning about history is really, so what? Uh, What does this have to do with me? Um, I vividly remember being a freshman in high school, uh, embarrassingly, but it took that long until being in Mr. Crow's class. Uh, where my sister is here, so she knows what I'm talking about. But uh, I remember we finally got to World War II, and we're talking about World War II in history class, and I, it kind of connected in my mind. Uh, my grandpa, my mom's dad, fought in this war that we're talking about, and we're studying about it here in history. You know, I thought these were all just kind of stories we learned about, but I, if they really happen or not, you know, I don't know. There's no. I can't see video of the the colonies and everything else. I don't know if that really happened. Again, living out west, we don't have some of this older stuff here, uh, but and the buildings and so forth are still there. But I remember, and again, moving forward to being the teacher, uh, teaching about American history or world history, and wanting to come to the issue of the so what? Why are we learning this? I mean, isn't history again just? memorizing dates and battles and uh, vocab terms that we can define, and that's really what we do. It's a big memorization of a story kind of thing. But what in the world does this have to do with my life? Uh, This happened a long time ago. Certainly, this doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. Uh, Well, it does. Uh, And now I I actually get paid. I'm not just allowed to, but I actually get paid, and that's my job to uh, connect why we do, why certain things happen, and and, of course, in the Bible, more ancient history, but history as well. Well, in a similar vein, however, I think we can come to miracles with this same question as well. Uh, what is the point of miracles? 
Uh, they're amazing, yes. Okay, God did this stuff. Uh, but what does that mean? Wh- why is he doing this? Is it just, a, a, as the kids say, a, a sort of flex uh, to show that he's stronger than others? Is that what he's doing? Um, you know, wh- what is the point of these? What does this have, what does this mean for me? And, and, you know, again, I can remember even reading about Jesus multiplying the loaves and the feeding the 5,000, which was probably 20,000 or more people, but 5,000 men, and, and wondering, and this is a long time ago, but I was a Christian, wondering, what am I supposed to be learning from this? I don't, I don't really get it. And you probably noticed that Elisha does a very similar uh, miracle in the last portion we're going to look at uh, this morning. But what is the meaning of miracles? Uh, and uh, why do we talk about Jesus walking on water, or cleansing a leper, healing a man who had been blind since birth. And again, it's, it, the point is not just so that we can have some little factoids in our brain that when we have Bible trivia, we can win. Uh, that's not their, the point of them. There is a specific point, though. And that's what I want to stress, even from the outset, is the so what. What is the point of this passage? Why are we reading about this this morning with Elisha doing these things, or again, God doing these things through Elisha, Elisha, excuse me, what does it, it mean for us? So keep that in mind as we go through uh, these three miracles. Now again, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a period of, of great apostasy on the land of Israel uh, that Elijah and Elisha were living in. There were some good kings. Uh, David was a good king. This no way means he was a, a perfect king, but he was a good king. As you go through his son, as you go through First and Second Kings, looking at his descendants after him, uh, they're in the in the southern tribe of Judah. There are kings that are good, uh, but it's they kind of are dot in between uh, uh, several kings. Then they'll be terrible. And as you go to the northern kingdom, as they had their own civil war in the north, uh, apostatizes worse than the south. Their kings almost entirely are wicked. And that's where Elisha is, up in the the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he's interacting with them. And again, they're they're facing this rampant Baal worship. So again, think of the so what, and again, the big question of Yahweh, or the God of the Bible, versus Baal. uh, The supposed God of fertility that the people were going to. And... As we go through this, and you think, well, I don't worship Baal, Um, remember, we all are prone to worship all sorts of things that are not God, and put in whatever you want there uh, that's not God in this this area of Baal. So I have, uh, I believe, three brief points today. We're going to look at the fact that Yahweh alone, our God, he is able to relieve. He is able to relieve in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. As we come to this section, uh, right in chapter 1, we read about this group of people that first showed up in chapter 2, but they show up again in in both of our uh, sections here this morning, and that is the sons of the prophets. Notice it says, now the wife, verse 1, now the wife of one of the sons of prophets cried to Elisha. And we're not exactly positive who the sons of the prophets are or were, but we think that they were really early or ancient apprentices uh, to obviously hear Elisha, to, to the prophets, 
and that they were training to be teachers. They were training to go around and be able to share God's word and teach God's word to those who still wanted to hear. Uh, this was a time during the lives of Elijah and Elisha uh, where preaching God's word, preaching the truths of Yahweh, preaching the truths that we read in our Old Testament, uh, was something that was uh, not only out of favor, but could get you in a whole lot of trouble. And here we see uh, the sons of the prophets. Uh, one of them has a wife who has lost her child. So we see this widow, and she's in need. And we see what she does here, and that she cries out in verse 1. Uh, very strong. She cries out to Elisha. And what she cries out is that her husband is dead, which would put her in a very difficult position as a widow. But she also says the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves, to be slaves. Now, there is provision in the law in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus is the book about the priests and so forth. There is provision for an Israelite in the land. And when they had fallen on such hard financial times, they could sell themselves into a form of slavery where they would uh, be able to work off their debts. And once they had did that, they had done that, they would be able to, uh, to then go free. Uh, however, in more spiritually uh, faithful times, um, somebody who was the wife of a, a son of a prophet, and I'm assuming, and I, I believe that the text is assuming that the reason they're in trouble with the creditors here was not because her husband, who was one of the sons of the prophets, was out just spending money willy-nilly and going wild and making bad, uh, reckless investments and all this other stuff, but that he was poor, that he legitimately was poor because probably he had been mistreated. Because if they weren't killed, uh, having their money and other things taken away from them, their land was very common as well. So again, uh, we're assuming here that this widow is in these financial straits because not through fault of her own or her husband, uh, but for some other reason. But uh, again, she's in trouble. And notice again what she does not do. She doesn't go to one of the prophets of Baal and seek their help. Again, Baal prophets were all over the land then, and these were the supposed gods of fertility or the god of fertility. Uh, money, abundance, whatever you want. If you needed help with that, you go to Baal, you go to a prophet of Baal, you make some sacrifices and so forth, and he would help you out. Well, she doesn't go to a prophet of Baal. Uh, instead, she goes to the, the much maligned prophet of Yahweh. She goes to Elisha, and she cries out to him, presumably because, like her husband, who's deceased now, uh, she knows that Yahweh and he alone is God. And he alone is able to provide. He alone is able to do something if he so wills. So again, she goes and she cries out to Elisha that he might help her. Now what follows is uh, Elisha coming to her and finding out that the only possession she has is a small, small jar of oil. And God supernaturally uh, multiplying this that he takes what she has, a little bit of what she has, and he multiplies it so that she can then sell it and have money to pay off her debts. Now, sometimes people get really into the, the details of this. You've probably heard them as I have in the past, uh, that 
Oil here is representing the Holy Spirit or something like that. Um, Yes, of course, there are times in the Bible where that is true. That's not what is going on here. Uh, This is actually referring to her having a small little bit, probably of olive oil, and that's all she has. We don't have to read in the Holy Spirit and other things. She has very little to live on, and Elisha is able to take, or God is able to take, is better said, what she has and make that enough to cover and bring her out of her uh, desperate situation that she's in. If you look, starting in verse 3, she's told Elisha what she has. In verse 3, Elisha tells her what to do. He says, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when it's full, set it aside. And then in verse 5, we see she does exactly to the T what Elisha, the prophet of God, told her to do. In verse 5, so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another. And he said to her, there is not another. And again, then it stopped and so forth. She was able to go, in verse 7, pay off her debts and her sons and her could live on the rest. The point here, again, is not that Holy Spirit in the oil or that this woman should have asked for more vessels and she would have had a bigger blessing or whatever. That's not the point in this text, at least. In this text, the point is she cried out to God. Through God's prophet, through his word, he gives her direction. She is faithful, and God does take care of her. Supernaturally, he takes care of her through a miracle, I must say, as well. Now, that brings up a a big question. Uh, Does this mean that if we have financial problems, that God is miraculously going to bring us out of them? Does it absolutely mean that is, I guess, what I should say? When we read this, should we first and foremost think, uh, as is often the case, or as this passage is often uh, read or taught, that if you're faithful to God and you're in a difficult situation, you do just what he says, he will deliver you from that difficult situation every time, Um, and I guess in this manner, meaning that if you're in a financial hardship, that God will relieve you from that. And what I'm going to say is, no, God does not promise that. Uh, That is not the primary teaching of this passage right here, Um, although that is a very common and, again, I will say incorrect uh, way of reading this passage. Now, absolutely are we to go to God with our problems, 100%. Is he the one who can take care of us? 100%. Is there anyone else who can uh, provide for us? No. Uh, Will God keep his people in terms of everything that you need for life and godliness? Will he keep you in the faith? Will he protect you from falling away? 100% always, 100% absolutely. Does he promise you if you are poor or struggling with bad finances, he will deliver you from that every time? No, he does not. Uh. Lord Jesus, when he's teaching in Nazareth in the Gospel of Luke, and he's teaching in the synagogue there in Nazareth, and the people are kind of feeling like they've, they've, got, a, uh, they've got a special place in God's heart and that he's always going to deliver them. And Jesus reminds them in Luke chapter 4. He goes back to this 
time of Elisha and Elisha, and he says to them, In truth I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, where the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. I don't think it's because this widow alone was going to be faithful to God. In fact, this is a Gentile that Jesus is talking about, and God didn't send Elijah, who can do miracles, to go do this for everybody. Again, think of a a miracle in the New Testament that I love to bring up, uh, but uh, Jesus' friend, uh, Lazarus, Jesus loved Lazarus, and so, of course, Mary and Martha, his sisters, send for Jesus to come and heal him. And does Jesus right away run there and heal him? No. The the text actually says, because he loved them, he stayed longer where he was. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is going to go and raise him from the dead later, but Lazarus and his sisters don't know that. They had to sit there as Lazarus died. And the text tells us that Jesus did that because he loved them. So please don't hear me wrong. I hope I'm uh, not getting, I'm not uh, communicating that God is unfaithful or something like that. Never, you know, perish the thought. And I mean that in all uh, sincerity. Um, God is absolutely faithful. But we have to know what God's promises are. Uh, There are sometimes promises or supposed promises, we think, and this is made into a promise, that God will heal uh, your child or that God will give you a a breakthrough financially or something like that. And that is not a promise from God. Uh, But we're going to see it is ultimately a promise, but not a promise right now uh, in our lives. So again, uh, we see uh, this miracle, though. And just wait, I see what I think are some concern-looking looks on faces of people, but we're going to get to the the purpose of it. So again, I'm saying that the point here is not uh, that God promises to bring his people out of financial hardship every time if they just cry out to him and obey him. Will God provide for you spiritually? Will God keep you? And will he even use means like other brothers and sisters in the Lord to keep you and help you financially? Yes, he will. Will he let believers also go through difficulty in terms of having possessions taken away, even people perhaps being put to death? Yes, he will. And we have that happening to brothers and sisters around the world. But ultimately, yes, he will keep you uh, for himself and for glory. Well, let's jump ahead to our next uh, portion, which all the way starting in verse 38. Again, starting all the way in verse 38. And we're going to see that Yahweh is able to heal In verses 38 through 41, he's able to heal. And we're also going to see in verses 42 through verse 44 that he's able to provide. Now, he is able to do these things. Now, again, in verse 38, as we look here, notice right away what we read. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land, where again, having brought to our attention what's going on in Israel, the state in which Elijah and Elisha ministered. Uh, It's a time of great apostasy, and it's a time of God's even visible judgment on the people. 
Uh, For Israel, again, he had promised them if they were faithful, if they clung to him, if they turned away from the false gods, that God would send them showers uh, for their crops, that they would have abundant harvests, uh, that they would not have to worry about their enemies, that all these things would happen. Their women would have children like crazy. There would be fertility all over the place. But at the same time, he warned them, if you turn away from me, and in fact, when you turn away from me and go after other gods, I will send people, prophets, to you to warn you. And if you don't listen to them, I'm going to start to send curses. Uh, Again, which are to warn the people that they are being unfaithful to his covenant. So the rain, it's going to stop. And remember, when we started this series with Elijah, that God tells Elijah to go and pray that it not rain. It's a judgment on the people. You want to go serve and worship Baal? You want to turn away from God and turn to this false god of fertility? Okay, you're not going to have rain for three and a half years. God is showing that he alone is God. He is sovereign over the rain, not Baal. But again, we come to this section and we see that there's a famine in the land. Now, both of these next miracles uh, have to do with food and something that we all need and that everybody needs. And when you get real poor, that's how you know a country is really struggling, is when there's no food. Uh, When people come to the United States and when younger people tell them, ask them, how in the world can you want to move people from Africa and other areas? How can you want to move to that horrible country, which is so you know, horrible and everything else? Uh, they'll tell them, the poor people in America are fat. And uh, it's true. If you go to somewhere like Venezuela, uh, where they're poor, the average person who was not fat to start off with uh, a couple of years ago lost an average of about 30 pounds because there was no food. When you're scrounging around, Uh, When you're hunting rats and squirrels and scrounging around in the garbage for food, that's when you're in, you know, you're really poor then. Uh, But anyway, this is a time when there is not much food. That is sort of the situation here in uh, the area of Israel where Elisha is ministering. So it's a time of famine. And uh, Ralph Davis, the commentator, uh, points out that the word, the verb for eat, to eat, is used eight times in this next section, verses 38 through 44. So it has to do with food and eating. You know, again, uh, you'll hear preachers all the time, and I heard this my whole life until more recently, you know, I don't think we have too many farmers here who know about actually growing food and it coming from out in the field to our tables because we all just go to the store and whatever. Well, actually, we do have a number of farmers here now, so I think we, hopefully, most people here do know a little bit more about how important it is for rain and having crops come in and everything. We don't have farmers getting food. We're in big, big trouble. So, and that's what's going on here as well. Food is the issue. And remember again, Baal is the supposed God of fertility and abundance with your crops and everything else. Uh, But there's a famine in the land. Our first miracle in verses 38 through 40, we see again that one of the sons of the prophets and one of their servants he goes out to help with cooking of some food. If you look at verse 39 in the text, it says one of them, this one of the, the servant of one of the sons of the prophets, uh, went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it in, 
it and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. So again, these wild ones, which he wasn't sure what they were, uh, this is almost, again, certainly due to the fact that there was a famine. And what he would normally go and get, they, they didn't have that anymore. So he's going out and looking for anything growing wild that they might be able to eat. So I don't think there's any malice here. Uh, I think he's, you know, as a son of one of the prophets, he's trying to provide some food for the people here. But as he does so, uh, he doesn't realize that he's gone and, and gotten something poisonous. As we look in verse 40, it says, And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. Again, this uh, is probably not referring to the food just tasting awful or rancid when it says they could not eat it. They probably started eating it and realized that it was making them sick, Uh, maybe dysentery. Uh, We don't know exactly, but probably something more than than just this tastes really bad uh, because it's put forward as an actual emergency. Um, So again, uh, they don't know, and there's something wrong with the stew. Now, Elisha, the prophet of God, has them cure it. And uh, here in in verse 41, his instructions are simple. Go and get some flour, toss that flour into the pot, and it will be fine. And uh, again, this is supernatural. It's not, it tasted bad, the flour kind of hid that taste, and they're okay now. Um, It says there is no more harm in the pot. Uh, So again, this is a supernatural miracle that's how it's being described here, that it would have killed them. And by doing something that doesn't ordinarily take away poison uh, or something that will kill you, uh, the people are able to eat. They're not going to be harmed. So God is able to heal. He's able to heal the people. He's able to heal this food. And lastly, we're going to see he's able to provide. And this is our second and last miracle of this section right here. Uh, <clears throat> Now, this miracle should bring to everybody's mind, if you have any familiarity with the Gospels, but Jesus feeding the 5,000, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier. If you remember with Jesus feeding the 5,000, that they come forward to him, and Jesus asks his disciples, how are we going to feed all these people? Or what, I'm sorry, not Jesus, but the apostles asked that, and Jesus asked them what they have, and they have five loaves and two fish, and uh, they don't have much. Actually, a little kid has it. And, of course, they're saying, how in the world are we going to feed all these people? But that doesn't phase Jesus. However, that's not the first time in the Bible that that happens. We have right here with Elisha uh, that we have a similar situation. As you look in, in verse 42, we see that a man comes down from a town now named after Baal. If you notice that in verse 42, a man came down from Baal or Baal, Shalisha. So they've changed the name of the city even to Baal. So maybe this is somebody who is there who is a worshiper of Baal, but realizes Baal is failing. We're starving to death. We, we turned to him because we thought he'd give us more abundant crops and all those things that he promised, but it's not coming through. But in any way, he comes down, uh, says to the man of God, and he brings the first fruits to him. And he brings about 20 loaves of bread. When you think of loaves, don't think of you know, our big baguette-type loaves. Think of more like a tortilla or pita bread kind of things. And this is not enough to feed uh, this many people. But Elisha, like Jesus, 
is not phased by this lack of food. If you look in verse uh, 42, at the end, Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat, in verse 43. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? But again, so he repeated, But give to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord. And that is the key part here, is that Elisha has a word from God directly to him that he is going to do a miracle. And that's what I want to stress when I get faces looking at me like, you're saying God is not going to be faithful. No, I'm not saying that. But they had a promise here from God that he was going to multiply this. In verse 43, they shall eat and have some left. So Elisha takes what's impossible. And then just like Jesus in verse 44, it says, so he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So they ate a miracle. All the people eat, and just like when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they have plenty left over, more left over, I'm sure, than they even started off with. So, coming back to that question right at the beginning, what is the point of these miracles? Okay, they're miracles. I don't really see miracles taking place today. Um, I don't really see where, you know, we have not enough food, and all of a sudden it becomes plenty. Uh, What is the point of these miracles? Well, I have a couple uh, things for us, really, in application and closing uh, about what's going on here. Now, it is absolutely true, 100%, that God can, he is able, to relieve our financial burdens. God mercifully still does, and God can even do that when it is our fault. Uh, He is able to do that. Uh, It is absolutely true that God can, and I believe does, Uh, supernaturally heals sicknesses as well to this very day. And he can do things beyond explanation, but that is not the main point of this passage that we've read today. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, somebody I like to rest on all the time because he's a great preacher and teacher, but um, Sinclair Ferguson said this about miracles, and I think he's 100% correct. It says, miracles are often thought to be contrary to nature. So, of course, you have Jesus walking on water. Well, he should have sank. Why didn't he sink? Um, So we often think of of miracles as being contrary to nature, or, again, supernatural, beyond nature, which often they are. But, he says, they are, in fact, contrary to the fall. Uh, Miracles are contrary to the fall of man into sin. They're contrary to Genesis 3 and what took place there when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and sin and death entered into the world and all the effects of sin that we continue to live with to this day. Now, miracles do authenticate uh, messengers of God. They authenticated who Elijah and Elisha were. And the apostles early on, that group of men right after Jesus, Uh, They did have miracles that we read about, did authenticate their message that they really were from God. But more than that, what it really is, is an inbreaking, like the sun, when it's first starting to come over the horizon, you first start to get a little bit of light. It's an inbreaking of the kingdom of God coming to earth. Uh, What all of us here have known our whole lives, no matter how old you are to how young you are, You were born into a fallen world. We're all born post-Genesis 3 or post-Genesis 1 and 2. We're all born uh, in a fallen world, right? Do any of you know a a 
world without sin and heartache and struggle and all these other things? Of course you don't. Death, because you were born into a fallen world, and so was I. However, what we need to remind ourselves and be reminded of is that is not how God created the world originally. Genesis 1 and 2, it was good. It was not until sin came into the world, and then even more so realizing that's not how God created the world is to remember and be reminded that is not, or this, what we now live with, is not the way, the, the final state, the way things are always going to be. Uh, this is a, an interlude right now. We have creation, everything good up until the fall, the fall, and now all the results of sin, death, sickness, famine, this woman being widowed, uh, things running out, uh, poison and danger, not having enough, having want. That is where we live right now. But you have these miracles, which are sort of in-breaking, uh, of what is going to happen when Christ returns. And it's the curse will be reversed. Uh, death will be no more. There will be no more tears. Uh, there will be no more suffering because we won't be sick or bereaved. There will be no more hunger because we'll be full. And again, this is not on the Bible. God, you know, as the kids like to say, on God, which is sort of blasphemous or taking God's name in vain all the time. I'm looking at some of them, only about one or two of them right now especially. But um, God puts it on himself that this will end when he returns. And miracles in this time are sort of God's little tokens right now of showing that this is going to be reversed. When Jesus walked this earth and he did miracles, he raised people from the dead, he's really reversing the curse, showing how things were and how they are going to return. And again, in this apostate world which Elijah and Elisha lived in, God through them did some of these things as well. Now, my point in telling y'all that we do not have a certain promise from God that he will always heal you. We do not have a certain promise of that. Uh, for now, in this time, we have the promise that God will absolutely keep you. He will keep you in the faith. He will not lose any. Uh, he will keep you bound to Christ. He will take care of you. Uh, God could heal us all, all the time, take away all of our burdens, make us not die anything that he wants. But right now, during this time, we are to be faithful to God's actual promises in scripture, but realizing that that time to come, there will be no more of that. So for now, we walk by faith, realizing that there will be a time when all these miracles will be more normal, or in effect, uh, you can either say it will all be a miracle or there'll be no need for miracles because there will be none of these effects we now live with. Everything, all the negative effects of sin will be done away with as Christ returns uh, to the earth uh, to set up a new heavens and new earth where righteousness is found. So again, for us, we need to be faithful to what God has promised us, knowing that he is faithful uh, that he will absolutely keep all of his promises. We need to remember that God alone in the Bible, uh, he, our triune God, is God. There are no other gods. It's not our triune God up there fighting these other kind of strong gods or even Satan himself, and it's a good fight. And even Satan is a created being. If God does not uphold him, he ceases to exist. Uh, 
Uh, there's God alone who can do anything, who can heal, who can provide. Um, and we need to look forward to that day when Christ returns, uh, when all the effects of the fall again, all the sin and suffering and things in our world will 100% absolutely be gone forever. And we will live with God in a new heavens and new earth where there's no more suffering or crying or tears or anything like that because all things have been made new. The curse has been reversed. Again, it's not a fairy tale. Uh, this is most assuredly uh, going to come to pass. We will be there. So uh, let us go to the Lord now and ask him to give us grace and faith to live during this time. Our Lord in heaven, <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that you do give these uh, gracious uh, precursors, these gracious uh, tokens of you doing these things, of you uh, showing that you have power over everything, over sin and death. As you raised even Lazarus from the dead, you will one day raise all. All will hear your voice and be, rise, be raised from the dead. As you multiplied loaves so that everybody ate and had their full, they were satisfied. Lord, there will be a day when there's no hunger. Uh, Lord, as the blind you made to see, there will be a day when there is no blindness. There is no more tears, as your word tells us in Revelation, that you yourself will wipe away the tears uh, from eyes. And Father, I pray more than anything that we not just hear and understand that the Bible teaches this, but it's absolutely going to happen. You have uh, sworn by yourself that they will happen, that the one who trusts in you uh, will not be disappointed. So, Father, we thank you for your prophets. We thank you uh, for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us, help us to be faithful, and help us to look forward to that day that you do return. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>